Thank you, Vince. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we will be. We're going to be in, uh, start in chapter, chapter 11, verse 2 uh, is where we'll start. And by God's grace, we'll get all the way through verse 16. So for us to understand this passage and really to understand much of the uh, New Testament, we need to understand the difference or what, what takes place within a culture that this was written to. And so within the culture of 1 Corinthians, there's this idea of honor and shame that kind of runs supreme within um, this worldview, with this belief. When I think of honor and shame, uh, for me to understand it, I think of Mulan. It's on. I don't know. I'll just yell and you'll have to listen. <clears throat> Mulan. That's where we were. Uh, there we go. Careful. Careful. Mulan. Everybody with me? Uh, A large premise of the movie Mulan, if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, is this idea of this honor and shame that takes place within various cultures. And this is very common in more Eastern cultures and very common in more ancient cultures, where the idea is instead of each person individually representing themselves, you represent your group or your society or your family, whatever you decide to represent. And within that group or that family, you have these ideals, you have these morals, you have these values that you hold to. And so if you individually do something of noteworthy, you bring honor to that group. And if you do something less noteworthy, more wrong, you bring shame. And so largely to this culture and to Eastern culture still to this day, um, it's this idea of honor and shame that takes place within these cultures. If you do something right, it's less about you and more about your society, your group, your family having honor. And if you do something wrong, there's dishonor that takes place there. That's important when we come to any of the New Testament. So much of the New Testament is written to cultures like that that we have to understand. So when we hear words like shame, that doesn't necessarily mean like personal shame. It's like a societal shame. And it's important for us when we come to this text of Scripture in particular because there's things taking place here that we need to understand. It's given to us in the Word of God. It's important, and and we need to know what Paul is talking about. So let's read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 2 all the way through 16, and then we will pray and walk through this verse by verse like we, typically, like we always do. Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is the one of the same and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered." 
A man should not cover his head because he is in the image and the glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man and was neither... Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have the symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now in the Lord, however, the woman was not independent from man, and man is not independent from woman. Just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even the nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. And if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage in particular, and deal with the text that you have given us, that is before us, that is 100% your word, infallible, inerrant, inspired for us. I pray that you would help us to understand it. But more importantly, God, I pray that you'd help us to obey. Because your ways are always better than our ways. And so I pray that you would give us grace, I pray that you would give us mercy, and I pray that you would give us clarity as we walk through this passage of Scripture, which has verses in it that have been argued about for uh, 2,000 years. But I pray at the end, God, we would walk away more focused on you, more focused on your gospel, more concerned for the lost within our community and within our families, and more eager and ready to know you. Thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start in verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. I want to pause there mainly because verse 3 is a huge verse for us to actually understand what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying here. So we we know in verse 2 when Paul says, I remember you in everything, and he's giving this group, uh, the Corinthians, a praise, right? He's building up their confidence a little bit. He's saying, you remember me in everything, You hold fast to the traditions. We know that Paul is using a little bit of hyperbole here. There was a church we went to one time on vacation, and and, uh, the the preacher kept saying hyperbole instead of hyperbole, and it was a lot of time. So every time I preach on uh, hyperbole, I want to make sure I get at least that part right. Hyperbole. That is when you bowl real fast. No. Hyperbole. And we know that Paul is using hyperbole because in verse 17, Paul says, I do not praise you. In verse 22, he says, I do not praise you. There's two other passages here that Paul is saying these things. So we know that he's giving them something positive here. He's giving them something good. Most likely what's happening in this text is there is a group of believers. uh, Most of the church is, is doing this right. 
Most of their church is, is handling this correctly, but it seems like there's a small group of dissenters within the church that's kind of uh, rabbling some rousings or rubbling some rousings or however you want to say it. They're causing some issues within the church. And so Paul, before he's going to dive into, and what we talk about the next passage is, is the Lord's Supper and then spiritual gifts come after that. What Paul is talking about here is he's trying to give them like a, hey, you're doing some things right. You're doing some things good. And encourage him in this manner. He's setting up his, his argument. So we've transitioned through several sections in, in 1 Corinthians. We just finished a section on food offered to idols. Right, So much from verse 8 to verse, uh, chapter uh, 10, all the way through 10, was about food sacrificed to idols, how we handle it, how we don't handle it, and it gives us an idea of, of what Christian liberty is, what Christian liberty is. And, and now we transition to what uh, most of the scholars call order within church services or order within the church. That when we gather like this, there is structure and there is purpose and there is meaning to it, and that's significant for us. It's meant to be this way. It's not an accident. It's not chaos. It's ordered. And so Paul is walking through this section here. And so to start with, he talks about this idea of headship. So we, we need to understand verse 3 because so much of the rest of it with the head coverings refers back to the head. So if we can't understand what the head is, then we don't understand what the verse is talking about at all. And the only problem is it depends on who you read and who you study that everybody kind of comes up with their own idea of what head is and what the head isn't, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And it really boils down to about three different meanings that it can mean. And I'll walk you through them and then give you the one that I, I think it holds to. But this is important because we see that it says Christ is the head of man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So what we do know is how head is used is used the exact same way in all three of those sections. So it's not going to mean something different for each of the sections. It's going to be the same, however we define it, however we get there. So what does head mean? Three views. First, head means authority. The authority of, of men over women, for instance. Second, head could mean source. Right? Paul says Adam is the source of Eve. God takes Adam's rib and forms Eve, and that's the headship there. Or third, it could mean preeminent or foremost, which would be like the cultural prominence of men over women. So which one of those is it? Well, let's look at each one and see if we can come together. Paul says, man is the head of the woman. Let's start there, because that one's the one that's going to get kicked by our culture, by and large, more than the other ones. In a related passage, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. So in Ephesians, when Paul is talking about headship, he is clearly talking about authority. Because wives are called to live in submission of their husbands. There's an authority there that God has given them. This is not popular in America, and I just ruined any chance of running for public office as if I hadn't already ruined those. We misunderstand this, and we don't like this verse because we don't understand what Paul is saying when he says submission. When we think of submission, we tend to think of doormat. 
to be walked all over or to have no opinion or you say, yes, sir, and you do whatever. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not the Bible. What Paul is saying is headship for the husband isn't meaning that the husband just has this domineering rule over his wife and his kids and his family. What Paul is saying is the husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church. What does Christ do for the church? Justifies her and sanctifies her. We can't save our spouses, right? There's a story about Morgan and I where she thought Jesus was coming back because the sky lit up in the middle of the night, and she clung to me because she knew I was going up, and she was, I thought she was holding me down. We don't have the power. I don't have the power to save Morgan. You don't have the power to save your spouse. That's not within us. But if you're a man, if you're a male within the church, and you're reading those passages, and we understand the headship, then it means that you have spiritual leadership of your family. Whether you want to own it or not, you're the spiritual leader of your family. And so where your family goes spiritually is going to fall on you. If you lead If you do right, then it works out well. And if you don't, and when we fail, we can see where that happens. So the job of the head, right? Headship is a weird word, but if you think of just your head in general, right? If God is saying the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is the the body that you're supposed to take care of, then what is the head's job? Well, it's not just to rule the body so that the body wears itself out for the sake of the head. It's to take care of the body. So if the body stubs your toe or breaks your toe or breaks your finger or is hungry or whatever, the head takes care of the body. It makes sure that its needs are met. But more than that, you help the body to thrive. That if you're a biblical man and we read these texts, then you understand whether you want to own it or not that you have authority, that you're the spiritual leader of your family, and everything that falls under the sphere of your leadership should be people who are thriving in their life and how they want to live it. You guide them, you correct them, you point them to Jesus, but under your leadership they should uh, thrive, that they should grow. So if your wife and your kids are struggling spiritually, it's your job as the man, as the husband, to help them grow. But I think there's an irony, because when we stop and we look at nearly every church in America, what you will see if you peel back the curtain is women lead in the church far more than the men do. that men's Bible studies will be lacking while women's Bible studies tend to have numbers out the roof. That if you just look around right now from, from experience and then there's people who are tracking these statistics that the women, and maybe you're this way, are extremely hungry to know the word of God and you should be. But it's just not the same with men. That if you look around, at most, you're likely to find two women serving for every one male. And I understand that men typically have jobs that require more time, right? You're not able to serve at various points in different places. But I also understand that sometimes men, our sin that we have, remember Genesis, when we went through Genesis, the sin of the man tends to be passivity. That we sit around and are more passive, which is a sin. You and I cannot get mad at our state, and we cannot get mad at our nation. We cannot blame the politicians. We cannot blame greed. We cannot blame Washington, D.C. or Austin, Texas for our problems if we're not going to step up and lead our very own families. 
We can correctly say that our nation is immoral. We can correctly say that our nation is unethical. We can correctly say that our nation needs to change and needs to repent. But if we're not willing to do that within our houses, it will not take place within the public sphere either. It doesn't matter what society tells us. The courts don't legislate morals. We do. And we find our morals and we find our values in the Scripture. And so we hold to those things. I mean, think about it for us, right? You and I, let's just take a humble pill for all of us. We're in Ira. You can call your legislator and say, hey, I'm in Ira. You need to listen to me. And most likely they will say, where? And you'll say, near Snyder. And the Texas guys might be able to go, okay, but the other ones are going to go, where? And you'll say, Lubbock, Midland, Abilene, draw a triangle, dot in the middle, that's where we're at. And they're going to go, okay, I've heard of Abilene, I know Midland has oil, and Lubbock is where Patrick Mahomes is from. That's the general idea. (laughs) The point is, you and I are going to have very little impact on our state legislator, let alone our national. But where we do have an impact is here. Where we do have an impact is our families, is in our community. And you can have a huge impact there. So the question, just these, this little section, right, that one line, the man is the head of the woman, and understanding what headship means just begs us to ask, are you leading your wives? Are they more holy? Are they more spiritual because you're their husband? Have you matured them in the Lord? Have you discipled them? It's hard to disciple your family because you can't turn it on and off. They see you all the time, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we can praise God for this because what it means is they see you all the time, so they're going to see you in your sin. And they don't need you to be a Savior. They need you to point them to Jesus, who is the ultimate Savior. So repent when we do those things and point them to Jesus and lead your family closer to the Lord. Wives, you're not the Holy Spirit. You are called to support and to care and to love your husbands, but you cannot force them to change. You can encourage them. You can be easy to lead. You can grow them in the gospel. You should not neglect your own spiritual growth because your husband is dragging behind. What we all should do and what we all should understand is we should hold tight to our nuclear family and we should hold tight to our local church. Because where men lead within the family and with the church, what you find are societies thrive. And when men fail in those leadership roles, what you find are societies that decay. That's how you change a culture. That's how you change a community. Is through gospel-centered, biblical, intense leadership from men who care about the Bible and living it out in their lives. So in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says the man is the head of the woman, in that part he's talking about authority. It can't be source because outside of Adam, every other male that's been born came from a woman. Right? Eve came from Adam out of the rib, and then after that it's been the natural birth process that God has given us. So it can't be source. And it, and it can't be uh, 
right, physically it can't be the source, and spiritually we can't save our spouses. Only Jesus saves us, so, so we're not the source. Well, the next part says, well, God is the head of Christ. So what does Paul mean here when he's talking about head? The Trinity is a hard doctrine to understand because our finite minds cannot grasp the infinite God that we worship and serve. Okay, we're finite, God is infinite, and so there's only so much that we know. And what the Bible is, is God revealing himself to us. And so what makes the Trinity hard is we want to give ourselves illustrations that are going to make it easier to understand, but virtually every illustration we come up with for the Trinity actually illustrates a heresy that takes place and not the biblical view of God. Right, so God, we, uh, I was always taught God's uh, uh, water, liquid, steam, and uh, solid, ice. But the problem with that is God's one God in three persons, and so you don't ever have liquid, steam, and ice all together. Right, so you're representing what's called modalism, that there's one God who shows himself in three different modes but never at the same time. That's an ancient heresy. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to lay out the Trinity for you from the Scripture. The Bible is clear that we have one God who reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three modes, not three personalities, three persons. Those languages, that word is important for us to understand. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father in and of himself is completely and fully God. God the Son in and of himself is completely and fully God. God the Spirit in and of himself is completely and fully God. So what I mean is that God the Father is not one-third God. And God the Son is not one-third God, and God the Spirit is not one-third God. There is one God who reveals himself in three persons, but we also learn is that the Father is always the Father. He's never the Son. And the Son is always the Son, and the Spirit is always the Spirit, that they don't change over time, that they've always been that way, and that the Son was not created And the Spirit was not created by the Father and the Son, that they've always existed within. uh, So it's hard for us to think about because we think in terms of temporal realities, right? We have time, but what about before time? God is outside of time, which means for an eternity past, God has always existed in one God in three persons. That's been eternal. And so... Every now and then you'll have various forms of false teachers that will come in and say, well, God was the Father in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament God showed himself as the Son, and then now he shows himself as the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. That's a heresy. That's not the God of the Bible. And you may think maybe this isn't that important. It is crucially important. If we can't figure out the God we're worshiping, we have a problem. So then what we see is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share every attribute together. So the Son is not less than the Father. And the Spirit is not less than the Son and the Father. Instead, what we see is within the Trinity, God is working his plan out that each person of the Trinity has a distinct role that they play within the salvation of mankind. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. So God the Father is the head of Christ the Son in the sense that God has a plan of salvation, that he's always had a plan of salvation. That's what Ephesians tells us, before the foundations of the world were laid. So before time began, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew how they were going to glorify us. They knew that we would be sitting here in Ira, Texas, listening to this doctrine that goes way over most of our heads. 
And so the son willingly and gladly submits to the father's plan because this is what brings God the most glory. So then what we see is headship, as, as described in, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven three, cannot mean preeminence. It cannot mean foremost. Because that would mean that God the Father would be above God the Son. That he would be preeminent. And that's not the truth. The Father's not more. He's not higher. He's not before the Son. The Son's not created. Jesus is God. So what we see here is God is Paul using this in the sense of authority too. That Christ is the head. That he's the authority of man. And he sets out a plan. And man is meant to obey this plan. So man is, is the head, the authority of the woman. He sets the plan, and the woman is meant to submit. So, and listen, if, if, if your husband's leading you in a wrong way away from the Lord, you have the job. If, if you're a spouse or a woman under some authority from a male, and they're leading you in the wrong direction, your job is to not follow that leadership. It's to call them to repent and grow in the Lord. You ultimately are responsible to God. But maybe you notice that in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't say husband and wife. He says the man and the woman. So the wording is vague, and it's kind of debated on exactly what Paul is saying here. Likely what Paul is thinking of is the local church where there's men, the elders who are in authority of the church that would be just the men, but then the idea of marriage has kind of creeped into the thinking as well and plays out there. And then God is the head, the authority of Christ, and it's the Father's plan that Christ accomplishes. And we see this when Jesus is in the garden, and he says, not my will, but yours. It's not that he's less than God the Father, it's that he's accomplishing the plan that God the Father set out from before time began. So this idea of headship, then, that Paul is using, I'll argue, means authority. Verse 4. Now, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For a woman doesn't cover her head, she should cut off her... So if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should cut off her hair. But if it is a disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off from her head shaved, or her head shaved, let her head be covered. And a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. A man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. So there's a lot to unpack here too. And it'll speed up. I promise it'll speed up. (laughs) So Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies. This is where we're going to speed up. Paul is going to talk a lot about prophecy in the coming chapter. So I'm not going to talk about it a lot right here, but I promise you we will discuss it because it's an important part for this church. Corinthians and and for our church as well. There is a difference between prophecy and preaching and teaching. And and essentially the difference is prophecy is God is giving somebody a word and then they proclaim that word. And preaching and teaching is you open up the Bible and you proclaim the written word of God. So my argument, what I think Paul is saying here is that prophecy in that sense has ceased and ceased with the last of the apostles. But we'll, we'll get there. 
So Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. This is where the honor-shame culture thing comes into play. He dishonors his head if he preaches or prays with something that is on his head. So there's, there's guys who will tell you that, that in this culture and in this place and in Corinth, if you went to the pagan temples, that the men who were there doing the offerings would wear coverings on their head. And so if you wore a covering on your head into this church, you looked like the pagan priests. There's others who said that the men who were the social elites would wear togas. And so if you would wear a toga and pull it on your head, then it was you flaunting your wealth in front of all of the people at the church. And so if you do those things, you dishonor the head. We know from chapter 3 that the head of man is Christ, and so you're dishonoring Christ, the authority that Christ has over you. You're disobeying God. But the idea of head also carries with it. You also dishonor yourself, right? There's the twofold implication there. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So we're going to skip some two here. Paul is not saying that women should preach or pray or prophesy or be elders. That's not what he's saying. And we know this because in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, Paul addresses it. We'll get there. right? We're marching down that road. I'm trying to save us a little bit of time. So instead, he's just using this example. It's parallel to what he says about men. He says, uh, if, if her head is uncovered, she dishonors her head. Well, who is the head of woman? The husband, the man at the church, and who's the head of man? Christ. So there's this honor-shame culture that's taking place. If she doesn't obey the Lord, then she brings shame on this value system that she has in place. I think it's helpful for us when they say dishonor for you and I, we would feel it more like disrespect. And so Paul says that's the, the same as her having her head shaved. There was this thought within this culture, and it's true, right? You have this temple that's, that's in Corinth that is a big issue. That's where all the food that are being offered to idols is taking place within this temple. And within the temple are going to be prostitutes that you could go worship with. And the way those prostitutes would signal themselves is they would wear long hair down on their shoulders. It doesn't mean that now. <laughs> but that's what it meant then. And so when Paul is saying, if they're doing that, if you come into the church and you're wearing it like that way, even if that's not what you're signifying, you look like what the culture thinks. You're, you're setting up this bad example, this shame that's coming upon the church of Christ. And so shave your head is what Paul would say. What he's getting to is there's a certain way we adorn ourselves and there's certain ways we don't. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is uh, disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Do you see what Paul is getting at within this culture? Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so if you're refusing to do what your husband says, if you're refusing to cover your head to honor your family, the real issue you have going on is you're not obeying Christ. 
that your heart is saying, not your will, but mine. And a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too the woman is the glory of man. This text is not saying that women are not made in the image of God. We know from Genesis 126 and 127 that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. And God made male and female to subdue the world, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And it doesn't matter what people tell us in 2023. It takes a male and a female to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world. That doesn't change. Instead, Paul is talking about this idea of headship. That the man is the spiritual leader of the family. That he's the one who's supposed to be glorifying God as he leads his family. That he's bearing this image of God. And so too is woman the glory of man. Do you know that only human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God? That's it. I'm grateful because we have a dog that I cannot stand, and that thing is not made in the image of God. It's Tootsie. That dog, I'm about done with her. If anybody would like a dog, I will happily. It's yours, Raylan. We'll drop her off tonight. It's this idea that there is this necessity, there is this obligation for men to lead your family. That in this culture, the women would wear the head covering as a sign of authority, that they were under the, the authority of their husband, that he was leading them to the Lord, that he was helping them grow, that he was sanctifying them. So the man should not do that. Both male and female made in the image of God. That's not what's being argued here. Paul is arguing about wearing appropriate adornments within the church service. He says in verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Here we see Paul drawing back to Genesis yet again. Man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. That's when God performs surgery on Adam. When Adam lays out all, God lays all the animals out in front of Abel. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible because it helps us understand our relationships between men and women. And as the father of two daughters and one son, I still don't understand women. But this passage helps. That God brings every animal in front of Adam and he says, go and name them all, which is this idea of authority. If you name something, you have authority over it. And so God is giving Adam this authority over all of the animals and he names all of the animals. And what we find in the text for the first time is it is not good for man to be alone. And none of the animals are a fitting helper, a fitting uh, person to be with man. And so it's then that God puts Adam under and he takes his rib Not from his head so he can rule over, not from the foot so he can stomp on top of her from the rib, something that protects the side of the man. And forms a woman, and as soon as Adam gets out of the gas and he goes wheeled out of the OR and he looks around and kind of comes back to consciousness, do you know what he says about Eve? It is not, whoa, she is different. It is, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman. There's a play on words in the Hebrew that's also a play on words in English. Man, woman. That there's 
this complementary relationship between males and females that must take place. Do you realize Adam cannot fulfill his divine command without Eve? He cannot be fruitful and multiply unless Eve is there. It's not how that works. I'd like to skip over this part, but I need some confirmation we understand. That there's a complementary role. And that God gives Eve as the helper for man. And sometimes people get upset when they do. When uh, we read the scriptures and it says Eve is man's helper because we think, well, that just means that women are subservient to men again. And men can just, the patriarchy, down with the patriarchy. That's not what the text is saying. Who is the weaker one? The one that needs the helper or the one that comes alongside and helps? It's the one who needs the helper. In fact, one of the names for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the helper. That he comes alongside and he helps. And he helps glorify God. Making much of him. Verse 10. This is why woman should have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. In the Lord, however, women are not independent from man, and man is not independent from woman. Just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. So we see that this is in verse 10, which is directly tying back to verse 8 and 9. And so he's like, so, so why should woman wear the symbol of authority on her head? Why should woman wear the veil? And Paul gives us an extremely clear answer. answer angels. And then he moves on. There's a lot of debate on what Paul is talking about here. There's some people that say with angels, the word in Greek is just messenger. So it could be pastors. It seems that that's the way John uses it in Revelation, that it's pastors of these churches. I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. Most likely what Paul is talking about is that there are angels who who help Christians have organized orderly worship, help to keep within the creation of mankind and help glorify God. And so he says, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. We're tied together for better or for worse till death do us part. And then Paul dives into what we saw in in Genesis chapter 2. Woman came from man, and so now man comes from woman. But did you catch what he tags at the end? All things come from God. See, what what Paul is telling us is it's almost like he knew what was going to take place in 2021, 2022, 2023, and beyond. Is Paul is telling us you're the gender you are for a purpose and for a reason. That it's not an accident. That God made you and God created you who you are biologically and physically for a purpose and for a reason, and it's not an accident. that he sovereignly appointed and he sovereignly directed you to be the sex that you were born. And there's only two. There goes public office again. Male and female. But he did this because that's how we complement one another. And together, male and female, we worship and we glorify God better. That's how he created it. We cannot fill the divine mandates unless there's male and female. This is why men's Bible study is not the church. It's a ministry of the church. 
as much fun as it is when we go skeet shoot and blow stuff up and eat a bunch of fried fish and feel sick for a couple days because I ate way too much fried fish. It's a ministry of the church. It's not the church. This is why when the women get together and do their Bible study and all the craft stuff that I don't understand, it's not the church. It's a ministry of the church. Because look what Paul says in verse 13. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that is, uh, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. So Paul lays all of this out. And it's funny what Paul does. What he's saying is that within our nature, right, and Paul talks about sinful nature, talks about all sorts of different nature things there, but generally within our nature, men have shorter hair and women have longer hair. Unless the mullet's popular. But Paul didn't add that in here. And so he says, if a man has longer hair, it's a disgrace to him. But what's interesting is Paul does not say, okay, so if he's setting up this legalistic deal, he's saying, all right, men need to have short hair, women need to have long hair. What Paul doesn't say is, okay, well, how long can a man's hair be and how short or how long does a woman's hair have to be? He doesn't say, cut it off at the ears, put the bowl on top, shave around every day, make it look nice and neat, nice and tight. He doesn't say, shave your head bald. He doesn't give us those restrictions because I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying that most likely we, we, we have no description of, of the length of hair. What he is saying is that if you're a man, you should look like a man and not a woman. And if you're a woman, you should look like a woman and not a man. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. There's some people who say this means if you have long hair, that can be your covering. That can be the thing on your head. I don't think that's what Paul is saying because Paul spent a long time getting to this point, and that seems contradictory to what he said before. But there are people who hold to that and believe it. Rather, I would look at the argument and say since women have long hair, wear a covering is more likely what Paul is saying when we look at the whole thing. that it's communicating culturally the distinctions between males and females. And so if anybody is, wants to argue, if there's anybody contentious, which Paul's writing this knowing there's people going to argue it and there's people that are going to be contentious about this. And when he says this, he's talking about the roles of men and women, the headship, the authority, the coverings. He says, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul appeals to the broader church multiple times within the letter of 1 Corinthians. Have you caught that? That there are these things that are specific for the church, but Paul wants us to know that this, his word is the divine authority that God has given him. It's not really his word, it's God's word, and it applies more than to just First Baptist Corinth. So, are we supposed to wear head coverings or not within the church if you're female? I think the short and sweet answer is Maybe. <laughs> Gender is not a social construct. That's what Paul is teaching us. 
From the beginning, God designed men as men, males, and women as women, females, and we're not to be complete unless we have one another. We need this complementarian to complement one another. So both genders are made in the image of God. Both genders have access to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Both genders can share in the same destiny, being fully and completely before the Lord in heaven. Different roles. Men exercise authority in marriage and in church to be the spiritual leaders of the family. This is the way God has set this up. And men have failed, and we should repent and grow in Jesus Christ because of our failure in this. And women, by veiling themselves, are are saying you submit to the leadership that you have over you. I don't think you have to wear head coverings in the church today because in our culture today, if a woman has a head covering on or doesn't, doesn't really commute anything, communicate anything about her relationship to her husband. It would have in, in the first century Corinth. If women didn't wear a head covering then, it would bring shame on their husbands. It would bring shame on their church, but it doesn't now. The hard part of this text is I believe each culture, each church has to work this out because we're all in different cultures, right? I could preach this passage in China, and it's going to look a lot different than I preach it here. And if you preach it in the Middle East, it's going to look a lot different than we preach it here, that we have to understand these things. So what is the text saying? Is Paul just saying a whole bunch of blah, blah that we don't really have to pay attention to? No. What he's saying is this is an issue of conscience. That if you feel obligated and led to wear head, wear head coverings, wear them and wear them for the glory of the Lord. And if you don't, great. For the glory of the Lord. What is far more important than our external appearance is our internal heart, our internal nature that God has given us. So if you show up and you do everything to a T and you've got your head covering, but you don't willingly obey your husband, if you don't submit to church leadership and the authority that God has given them, then you're in disobedience to God. It doesn't matter if you do all the other stuff right. Internally, what you're saying is my way is right and God's way is wrong, and that's the sin that Paul is coming at. We're going to see that play out when they get into the Lord's Supper, and we realize they're doing some weird stuff with the Lord's Supper. We're going to see that when it plays out with spiritual gifts, and they're doing some real weird stuff with spiritual gifts. It means for husbands, if you won't lead your family to Jesus in a way that helps those under your authority to thrive, what you're saying is my way is more important than God's way, and that's rebellion against God, and you need to repent and turn to him. It's about bringing glory to Christ. So how do we do that? Paul already told us. Do everything, whether you eat or drink or go to a basketball game or go shopping at Walmart or go eat at Whataburger or any other better restaurant in Snyder. Do it for the glory of God. That we major in the gospel. Now, here's the thing. We'll take that verse and we'll slap it onto things that we like to call idols and let those run our life for the glory of the Lord. Nobody has ever looked at you at a basketball game or you at a football game or you in Walmart when you're shopping for the glory of the Lord and you know what, and look at you and just go, you know what, I'm going to follow after their God because they bought the right brand of riceroni or whatever it is you're purchasing. It's more than just simply, 
I'm going to mind my P's and Q's, I'm going to tip well, and I'm going to do these things. It's understanding that the gospel is Jesus died in our place. And that impacts everything from the smallest thing in our life to the biggest things in our lives. So let how you live, let your conduct in your life show others that Jesus is central to you. And if you're not sure if he is, let me give you three places to look that will help you evaluate it. Look at your calendar, look at your bank statement, and look at your social media. Who do they glorify? Those will reveal your heart far more than whatever Bible verse you want to put on the wall. Right, the Bible is important, but we can make the Bible say whatever we want to. The idea is to understand contextually what Jesus is saying, to turn from our sin and to follow after Christ fully and completely and let the inside salvation that God does, the new heart, take place and begin to flow externally from us. So men, step up and lead your families. They're looking to you for leadership. The church is looking to you for leadership. By and large, our culture is looking to you for leadership. It's one of the most radical things you can do is to lead biblically. Watch what happens. Women, encourage the men in your life and follow them willingly. And when men lead wrong, win. Lovingly help them get back on the right path. God gave you as a helper to them. Not the Holy Spirit, but a helper to point them back to Jesus. Men, church, let's raise our boys to be men. And let's raise our daughters to be women. Let's not let the world teach them what to do. Let's let us teach them what the Bible says so that they can go into the mission field that we call school, share the gospel with their classmates, and that God might start a revival here in Ira because we decided to be what God calls us to be. And listen, when we fail, repent quickly to God first to those that we've hurt, and then keep growing together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. And I thank you for this passage. God, our, our world has lost touch with what this means. But by your grace and by your mercy and by your sovereignty, God, by your omniscience, by your omnipotence, by your omnipresence, you have placed us in the culture, in the place, in the time that you've placed us largely, God, to be a voice that speaks against what our culture says in this area. I pray that you'd help us to do so boldly, with grace and with mercy to spare. Help us to be strong in you. Help us to grow in you. Help us to make much of you, Jesus. God, for any unbelievers who are here today, I know that this message sounds odd. But what I also know is where your word goes out, life begins. And so, God, I pray for any unbelievers who are here that your word will go out and it will save them they will repent of their sin and that they will turn to you in faith and that they will join us, Father, as we continue to press against the darkness and push forward the light of your gospel. 
for the believers who are here, God, I pray that you'd help us to repent where we need to repent. To be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, God. A lot are, we're doing a lot of great and good things within our church. You've given us mercy and you've given us the grace to do a lot of those things. I pray that you would continue to help us press forward and to press on in those areas. Help us to recognize the opportunities you've given us and to glorify you in all that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.